and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, again, let me give you my welcome uh, to Bent Tree Church. My name is Wade Williams, and I am one of the shepherding elders here at the church. And I have the privilege of, of preaching God's word to you today as uh, Pastor Paul is still out taking a time of rest and respite. And so as such, uh, I'm in uncharted territory because within the church world, it is, is pretty well known that Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day are the three most well-attended services of the year. And typically, the B-team preacher doesn't get one of those days, okay? And so I don't have a Mother's Day sermon in my repertoire because it is not something that I have typically been called on to do. And so you can probably tell uh, from our scripture reading that our text today uh, is not a classic Mother's Day text. Nonetheless, uh, I want to make sure that we, that we spend our time uh, studying God's word together today. Uh, I know many of the mothers that are here that are here with their families are probably thinking to themselves, that's fine, just preach Jesus. And, and so that is something that I really uh, kind of lean into in a moment like this is that there are a lot of families here today that may not normally be here. And so if this is your first time visiting Bent Tree because you're here with your mom, you're from out of town or something like that, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here as well. And we're going to spend some time studying God's word today. Um, a, a little bit of explanation for why I chose this text is uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Howe uh, was teaching. And when he, in the midst of his sermon, he started talking some about this idea of typology and understanding uh, the Bible as, a, as an entire unified story that helps us understand who Jesus is. And he related some of those things to the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, it just it got my wheels turning. Um, and so as I started thinking about, hey, what is it that I'm going to preach uh, on Mother's Day? This story of David and Goliath to me is, is one that I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, in the imagery, it is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. You'll turn on a sports broadcast and you will hear a biblical reference from a sports broadcaster whenever they tell you that today there is a David and Goliath matchup. Malcolm Gladwell has a best-selling book based off of David and Goliath. And so this is a really well-known story, but my fear is that it's an often misunderstood story in the Bible. And so what I want to do today is unpack this and for us to look at what it is that the scriptures are teaching us through this encounter with David and Goliath. And so I want to kind of frame it though, because this story is an epic. Literally, it has some elements that we are used to seeing in epics like um, Homer's Iliad. If you've ever seen the movie Troy uh, that was based off of Homer's Iliad, the opening scene of the movie is an immediate hook. As two armies are on either side of a battlefield and the kings meet in the middle and they have this discussion and they decide, okay, here's what we're going to do actually. I'm going to send out my best warrior. You send out your best warrior. The two of them will fight and that'll be it. We don't need to let thousands of men die today. We'll just have two guys come out here. One will represent our army. One will represent yours, and that'll be it. And so the first king calls out Moagrius, this giant human being. If you've seen the movie before, you're picturing this giant guy come walking through the crowd, step out there. And the other king calls out Achilles. And Achilles comes out and strikes down Moagrius, and everyone is in awe. And if you know anything about the story, Achilles is after glory. 
Achilles over and over and over again in the movie and in the, the book, the Iliad is talking about glory. His name, he wants his name to live on forever because of what a great warrior he was. And so that's one of the reasons why this, this kind of story captures our imaginations is we're used to those mono mono battles, right? Good versus evil. Sometimes in, in less serious context, like a baseball game, we love to see somebody step up to the plate with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth, down three runs, and for the one team's best pitcher to be on the mound and for another team's best hitter to be at the plate, man on man, who's going to win? And so we watch these stories with a great bit um, of excitement to see what's going to happen, who is going to prevail in the midst of these key moments. And this is a story of deliverance. We see an underdog win. We see an enemy defeated and a people delivered from an oppressor. So we immediately connect with the battle aspect, understanding our own need to be delivered. We all have challenges and problems that we face. Goliaths, as it were, in our lives that we need to be delivered from. And we can learn from David. We can learn from David. So today, as we look at this, we're going to focus on three things here. All of them centered around uh, pieces of David. First, we're going to look at David's motivation. Second, David's preparation. And third, David's exaltation. Motivation, preparation, exaltation. Yes, I did that on purpose. Okay. Let's begin with David's motivation. I, I mentioned it earlier that, that in that movie, Achilles is after glory. There's even a moment in the, in the movie Troy, if you've seen it before, where Achilles is in another one of these one-on-one battles with the king Hector, the prince Hector rather. And Hector actually trips over a stone. And rather than strike him down while he's on the ground, Achilles tells Hector, no, no, get up. I won't let a stone take my glory. I'm not going to let you trip over a rock and the rock be the thing that got you. Achilles is very clear. I want to kill you so that I can receive the glory. And in a baseball game, we know that when that guy hits the home run or strikes somebody out to end the game and close out the World Series, that always forever on the line is glory. If you take the other man down, you hit the home run, you get the glory. But David is different. He has glory on his mind, but not his. Look back at 1 Samuel 17, 25 and 26. Listen to the heart of David. As he speaks, says, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Saul, as the king of Israel at the time, should have been the first to step up and to step out and to take on this Philistine giant. But instead, it's the young shepherd boy from Bethlehem who shows up and he is indignant. Everyone else is upset, and they're, but they're afraid. David is indignant and he is zealous. He says, who will take away this reproach from Israel? This cannot stand. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
he should not be allowed to defy the armies of the living God. This cannot stand. David's concern is glory, but it is not his own glory. He is motivated by the glory of God. And many Christians today, as we, as we look at the things that we have in our own lives and we want to be delivered from a trial, but then there's this very clear temptation that, that comes along when people are delivered from a trial, all of a sudden they want to step out from behind the trial and begin to beat their own chest as though they were delivered by their own strength. David is not that way. He knows that he needs to be delivered and it will not be by his own strength. First Samuel seventeen forty six says, this day, David speaking to Goliath as they begin here, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beast of the earth. Some pretty good trash talk, right? <laughs> Why? So that everybody will know that I am the greatest warrior on the face of the earth. So that my name will live in infamy. So that I will be remembered throughout the ages. No. How does David finish? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David's motivation is the glory of God. Plain and simple. His concern, taking away the reproach from Israel will not allow this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Friends, if, if you're facing something today and you go to Jesus, can, you, can we go with this mindset? If we have a, a disease and it's debilitating and it's painful, can we cry for help so that all the earth may know that Jesus is the God who heals the sick? If you're, if you're in financial straits, can you cry for help that all the earth may know that Jesus is the God who provides for all his people's needs? If you're, bro- if you're in a broken relationship of any kind, can you cry for help so that all the earth may know that Jesus is the God who restores broken relationships? If you're depressed, can you cry for help so that all the earth may know that Jesus is the God who brings joy to his people? In every circumstance... In every aspect of life, we live differently. Yes, we may want relief from the temporary pain, but that desire should be dwarfed by our desire for the whole earth to know that our God reigns. That's David's motivation. Secondly, David's preparation. As Christians, I think it's dangerous sometimes if we look at this story and we don't put it within context and think about it within the, um, the frame of the biblical narrative because there's a temptation here. We love David and Goliath, but, but sometimes we act as though David, out of nowhere, just showed up, had never touched a sling before, didn't even know what a rock looked like, and all of a sudden walked down to this river, picked up a smooth stone, slung it, and it found its mark. Now, I want to be clear. I want to balance here God's providence and God's sovereignty with David's preparation. 
But I'm going to lean hard on David's preparation because I think the tendency within the church today is to think that we should just wake up and it's all just going to be taken care of. It should be extremely easy. And so I just want to come back for a moment and point to you and say that this is not David's first rodeo. Okay. First Samuel 17, 33 to 36. Hear the way that David had been living his entire life. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine is going to be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David has had victories before. David can recount the ways that the Lord has delivered him in the past. And because of that, David has strong confidence that the Lord will do it again. He's been out working. He has not been sitting idly by and showing up on this day ready to go and face the Philistine. No, he's been working. He's already faced the lion and the bear. He was diligent in keeping his father's sheep. And all that hard work before him has prepared him for that day. I said before, I don't think this was the first time he picked up a sling either. In the book of Judges, we read this, and Goliath has to know this. This is Judges before the time of Samuel and anointing a king. Judges 2016 says, they were told that among the people, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. There's preparation. David has been working hard and continually sought the Lord his whole life. He was faithful as a shepherd and it was preparing him for this moment. Friends, if your marriage is in shambles, don't think that one day you're just gonna wake up, turn into David before Goliath and the whole thing's just gonna be fixed. No. David was molded and shaped over a period of years to be ready to face this challenge. David's deliverance appears swift when we read the story, but that's only because his preparation has been long and painstaking. We likewise need to win small victories so that we see God's providential care in all the small things and we have the confidence in the big things that we can go forward with God. You know, the, the scene here to me is is. Is crazy. You know, you think about it is almost like a stadium. If you read the full context, it says that the children of Israel are on one hill and the Philistines are on another hill. There's a valley in the middle. And David goes to meet Goliath. Where? In the valley. And I can't help but think that David is thinking to himself, I've struck down lion and bear, and God has delivered me. And been with me every time. 
And so we too need to follow the Lord and see all of our small victories so that when we walk into the valley, the same way that David walks into the valley to face this giant Philistine, that I can't help but think that it's on David's mind when he wrote these words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd boy, knowing that he has a shepherd as he walks into the valley to face this Philistine giant, confident that he has been working, he has prepared, and even more important than his own work and preparation, he knows that the mighty hand of God is with him. I want to put this before us because I think of, of passages like 1 Corinthians um, 15, Verse 10, David has prepared for the day. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. How is he there? How did David hit the mark? By the grace of God. He is what he is. And his grace, but listen, his grace was not in vain. The rest of verse 10, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Friends, can we talk like that? Can we say like David, I've struck down lion and bear, I know God's faithfulness. And so when I walk into the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. By God's grace, I am what I am. And at the same time, I have worked harder than any of them. His grace to me was not in vain. Friends, God's sovereignty and our work are going together to accomplish his purposes. It is both and. It is not either or. Do not think that just because you're a Christian, if you have financial struggles, you are going to roll out of bed one day and that there's going to be a check on your front porch. We work, God gives grace, and they go together. David's motivation, the glory of God. David's preparation, a shepherd boy, faithful and diligent for years in what he should be doing. And only because of those things can we get to David's exaltation. 1 Samuel 17, 48 to 51. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now this may just seem like a normal end to this story. Yep, he killed the guy. 
But in the Bible, there are a few things that we should pay particularly close attention to. And one of them actually happens right here in 1 Samuel 17. In the Bible, there is, there's a motif that is instructive here. And I'm using a fancy word for it. There are lots of different motifs in the Bible. But one of them is, is taking place right here, right now in the midst of this story. And so to help you understand kind of a motif, I spoke with my mom earlier today for Mother's Day. And as I was talking to her, I was thinking about this. And there's an example of a motif that uh, a pastor, Doug Wilson, gives all the time. And I'm, I'm actually going to use it. But it's so fitting for me because anytime I'm at my parents' house in South Mississippi, the TV is usually on this channel called Grit. Does anybody know the, the TV channel Grit? Okay, good. There's a few hands in here. Yeah. That, yeah, Dennis knows what I'm talking about. Okay. My mom loves Westerns. Okay. So Grit, all Westerns. And so I was talking to her today. I was like, what's that channel? This is going to fit with my sermon this morning, mom. Right. Because here, here's a motif for you. Old town, dirt road, one main street, wooden buildings on either side. All of a sudden, the screen comes on and the town is empty. There's no one out there in the street. Wind's blowing, dust is flowing everywhere. And then, you know, a providential piece of tumbleweed right? Just comes rolling across the street. Okay. What's about to happen? It's a gunfight. We all know it, right? Clint Eastwood is about to come out there with his eye twitching, right? Hands on his six shooter, ready to go. That's a motif, right? When you see it, you know it. And it's so ingrained in you that no one has to explain. Well, you see this tumbleweed right here. No, you just know what it is, right? And there are motifs throughout scripture, but one of them is actually just dropped right on us here in 1 Samuel 17, and it, it receives no explanation within the context of the story. No explanation is given. But if you know the motif, you see it immediately. I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is shortly after the fall, and many theologians call call this the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel. This is the first announcement of the gospel. And cool enough, the first person to preach the gospel is God himself. And the first person to hear it is Satan. So this is God speaking to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. A lot of translations read, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise of the Savior, the one who is to come and deliver God's people that he will crush the head of the serpent. And then the motif continues, especially in the book of Judges. So I talked about this last Mother's Day briefly and Hal brought it up to me when I was talking about, I think I might do something typological and and all these kind of things. But in Judges chapter four, there's a woman named Jael, 
And she, in Judges chapter 4, has a man who is a king and and an enemy of God's people actually come to her tent as he's fleeing from the people of God. And he's he's a wanted man. They're chasing after him. They can't find him. And in the middle of the night, she takes a tent peg and a hammer and drives the tent peg straight through his head and crushes his skull. A little intense, I know. Then later on in Judges chapter 9, as a battle is happening, there's another evil king, Abimelech. And he's, they're fighting with people who are in, a, um, who are in a, a wall. They're inside of a walled city. And Abimelech gets too close to the wall. And it just says that there's a certain woman who took an upper millstone and she rolls it off the wall. And guess what it does? It lands on his head and crushes his head. David when he comes back from winning victories over the Philistines at one point, has the lords of the Philistines lay out on the ground and the elders of Israel come and they put their feet on the head of the Philistine leaders. These motifs just keep rolling out in the Bible. And so the theologian James Hamilton says this, It seems that the authors of the Bible regard the enemies of the people of God as those whose heads, like the head of the serpent, the father of lies, will be crushed. Bad guys get broken heads in the Bible. It's the motif. Now in Romans chapter 6 verse 20, we're told this from the Apostle Paul. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So the motif and the image of what's happening here is is going on and on and on. And now today, we still fight, but not in the same way that the children of Israel did as God's representatives on earth. We, the church, move forward in battle, but it's different. The book of Revelation tells us that we overcome... Not with the sword, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so, friends, we continue to wage spiritual battle. And I know this isn't a a Mother's Day text, but I I just want to say to the kids in the room, listen to your mom. Because one of the greatest resources that we have when it comes to waging spiritual battle is the word of our testimony that, that you not despise your mother's teaching, as the Proverbs tell us. There are mothers, there are women everywhere who may not be driving pent te- or tent pegs through someone's head. They may not be throwing up or millstones, but day after day, they are reading the Bible and praying with their children. Praise God. Praise God that women continue to move the gospel forward through the way that they equip children with the truth of God's word. The only offensive weapon that we have anymore, our sword, the sword of the spirit. So where's our motif excursion? So I'm gonna go back to 1 Samuel 17. Okay, imagine that you're an Israelite and you know the motif just as well as you know the Western motif that I just talked about right there and you're standing on the hill Okay, and you see the little shepherd boy walk into the valley and face this giant. Against all odds, he slings a stone and it crushes the giant's head. 
imagine how you feel. Imagine the thoughts and emotions that run through your body when you see the enemy of God's people with his head crushed by the seed of the woman, by this young man who is your leader. David freed his people from the giant that was oppressing them. And he did it in a way that matched perfectly with what the scripture had said about the deliverer. And so the right question that we ask at this point is, is he the one? Is David, is this the guy? We know from David's life that he's, he's not the one. Because the, the real giant that we face, just to make sure I frame this for you. The, Phil, the Philistines were oppressing the people of Israel. Was that the people of Israel's biggest problem? No. Friends, you may have a debilitating disease, and I, hear me, I do not, I'm not making light of that. You may have financial trouble, you may have strained relationships, but is that your biggest problem? I submit to you that it is not. It is not. Our biggest problem is that we have defied the living God, is that in many ways we've been Goliath. We're actually the ones who have trampled underfoot his testimonies, who have not obeyed his law, who have scorned his love, who have rejected him, and who need grace and forgiveness. Our biggest giant, our biggest problem is not financial trouble, marital strife, illness, none of those things. It is our sin that separates us and cuts us off from a holy God. We need somebody to do for us. We asked the question about David, is, he's the, is he the one? And no, he's not. We need somebody to do for us what David could not do. And that's where we get to typology. The story is instructive. You're not David. That's not the point. If you, if you read the story and you think, I'm supposed to be like David, you missed it. A type, how, this is Hal's definition from a couple of weeks ago, is a theme that can be traced through scripture, bringing both Old and New Testaments together. And there are a lot of those that happen here with David. There's a types and shadows is the words that you use here in the book of Hebrews, right? And so a type, um, quite literally, is if you, if you go back to George Bush's election, right? You remember the hanging chads, Right? There's a little punch out that goes around and there's like a perforated edge and you could just punch the thing out, right? So you see the outline of what this thing is going to look like and then you, you actually take it out and then you can see, oh, this is the picture, right? Or it's a shadow. The other day I was in a store walking around. I was trying to scare Calix, sneaking up behind her, tried to scare her. Daddy, you didn't scare me. Why? I saw your shadow. Now, the shadow's not me, right? But it was enough for her to know my dad's coming. He's trying to scare me, right? He's right here. And so the shadow is what we get in the Old Testament. David is a shadow that points us to the real thing. We have someone even better than David. The great Bible teacher Uh, Tim Keller always says it this way. He, he, He refers to all of these types and shadows in the Old Testament. He'll talk about the person and then he'll say, but Jesus is the true and better. And so I want to submit to you today that we have the true and better David. 
like David, is from Bethlehem. He too, remember in the story, David actually puts on Saul's armor, the king's armor, to go out and he says, I can't wear this. Jesus too stripped himself of the king's armor and became vulnerable in a way that only he could. He went into battle with no sword, the same way that David did. He crushed the head of Satan with his death on the cross, and then he defeated evil with its own sword. David was crowned the king of Israel, and Jesus is the king of kings. David is teaching us about Jesus. Tim Keller said it this way, Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. The people of Israel standing on the hill, and they're delivered by their own strength, by their own might? No. By the one who goes as the champion into the valley and faces their enemy on their behalf. You're not David. You're on the hill. You are one of the Israelites on the hill watching your champion fight for you and win a victory on your behalf. What did David get as a reward for his victory? It's back in verse 25. The king will enrich the man who kills him, speaking of Goliath, with great riches and will give him his daughter. Will give him his daughter and make his house free in Israel. David got a bride for his victory. What did Jesus get because of his victory on the cross? He got a bride, the church, a people for his own possession whom he has purified through his shed blood on the cross where he defeated Satan, sin, and death. This is the point in the story that gives us a glimpse into what it is like to have a champion fighting on our behalf. Does God care about my marriage, my sickness, my financial issues, my depression? Yes, without question. That's why he crushed sin. That's why he crushed sin. Sin's the only reason any of those things exist in the first place. A couple summers ago, I was in, uh, in Mississippi visiting family at my brother's house. My kids are playing with his kids. They're on the swing set. We hear this scream from the girls who are on the swing set. And they all come running. There's wasps. Right? And so they've each been stung and they're all, they're screaming and running away and there's some, definitely some crying going on. And so my brother and I, as they're running towards us, we take the girls, yes, like loving fathers, sort of, right? We try. We take the girls in and we get ointment and, and put it on their, you know, wasp things and try to help them and comfort them through this whole process, right? Okay, that is, that is God the Father, as we come to him with our issues. Okay. But what does a real loving dad then do? You go back to the swing set and you knock the wasp nest down and you spray it. And you don't just help with the sting, you eliminate the issue altogether. That is what God the Father has done in Jesus Christ. Yes, he helps us, he comforts us in our time of need, but more important than that, he has crushed Satan, sin, and death. And so we can seek his help in this life, but there's no promise that we'll get it in this life, but there is for the next. So I wanna close with these thoughts. 
Because of what Jesus has done, even if your disease kills you, it cannot destroy your life in heaven. Even if you go to the grave broke, it cannot steal your treasure in heaven. Even if your spouse leaves you in this life, you are loved by God and depression can make you mope through this life, but it cannot steal away your joy in heaven. When you see Jesus face to face, Jesus is our champion. The real giant is down. We can rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you grateful for the way that you've made yourself known through your word, both for the way that you've acted in history, what you did for Israel through David and its significance, Lord, but not only that, but that you were using that to show us who Jesus is and the way that you would truly care for us, Father. God, we thank you for sending a champion, for doing what we could not do on our own, that we could not face Satan, sin, and death on our own, but you didn't make us, that you sent us a great deliverer, Lord, that you gave us the true and better David, and it's because of his victory that we have victory. Father, thank you. Help us to be motivated by your glory to seek to grow in love and wisdom and knowledge of your word and to exalt in the hope of your glory. We ask for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.